Good morning. Today we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. If you wouldn't mind, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This can be found on page 403 if you're using the Pew Bible. Page 403. I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem. Hashbadinah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You can be seated. Lord God, we come to you gladly today. We know that there is nowhere else to turn because you have the words of life. So we pray that you would use those words to transform us today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we made it through Christmas. We made it through Boxing Day. I don't know, maybe you were out uh, driving around or, or shopping and you heard these lyrics on the radio or in a store. So this is Christmas, and what have you done? Another year over, and a new one just begun. 
And so this is Christmas. I hope you have fun. The near and the dear one, the old and the young. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. Well, this song entitled Happy Xmas was written by John Lennon and, and uh, Yoko Ono in 1971. And their purpose was to communicate a cautious but hopeful optimism at a possible end to the Vietnam War. Since then, this song has been covered by Sarah McLaughlin and another, a number of other recording artists over the years. But no matter who's singing it, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it always feels like a sad Christmas song. Um, the lyrics seem to approach the passing of the year with this desperate sort of idealistic hope, not really one that's grounded in anything more than wishful thinking. Sure, the Vietnam War would end, but it would be replaced by other conflicts around the globe, not to mention the interpersonal and the, the inner conflict that plagues mankind no matter what time of year it is. So there's a futility there, I think, um, and I think it's even felt a little bit in the melody. Uh, maybe that's just me. But I suspect that all of us have felt at one time or another this, this melancholy, this sort of this sense of futility at the passing of time, at the passing of one year and the arrival of another. Another year over and what have we done? As for the new year, let's hope it's a good one. Let's hope we have fun. Let's hope we live without fear. And the family gatherings now are over. There's one last celebration tonight, and then it's back to life as usual, right? And we try to put a positive spin on the passing of time and, and um, paint it as a t- an opportunity for reset, which we, we do with New Year's resolutions. But I think that if you've lived any length of time, you realize that change, like real change, is very hard to come by. So we're often left with just sentimentality about the past and wishful thinking for the future. Well, today we're going to look at a New Year's celebration from almost 2,500 years ago. And we're going to see how it actually was a time of true change and true rejoicing. In case you're not familiar with the book of Nehemiah, I'm going to try to to run you through it, to summarize it all in about two minutes. Okay? Ready? Here we go. The Persian Empire spanned all of the Middle East, and its, uh, its borders were you know, down to Egypt in the south, to Greece in the west, all the way through India in the east. And about a hundred years before uh, the time of Nehemiah, the Persians had conquered the Babylonian Empire. And so they were the new masters of not only the land that we know of as Israel, but also of all those Jewish peoples who had been taken into exile by the Babylonians in fulfillment of God's judgment. So uh, when Nehemiah was written, there was a a powerful king named uh, Artaxerxes on the throne of the empire. And a Jewish man named Nehemiah served as his cupbearer. In those days, a royal cupbearer had a lot of power. His job, of course, was to serve drinks at the royal table. Um, But that that involved more than you might think because there were always murderous plots about. And so the the cupbearer had to guard against poison in the king's cup. And that gave him a, a very close relationship with the king. He was highly trusted, and cupbearers were valued for their modesty and their industriousness, their courage. Well, one day, this cupbearer, Nehemiah, 
hears the news of the Jewish settlers who had been allowed to return to Israel and resettle the area. And though the new temple had been built and though the priest Ezra had brought some reforms that, that were definitely positive, the situation still wasn't good. The wall of Jerusalem still hadn't been rebuilt and the small population of inhabitants were mocked and threatened by their enemies. And this so troubles Nehemiah that he fasts and he pleads with God about the situation. King Artaxerxes then sees that this normally contented servant is for some reason deeply troubled. And so he invites Nehemiah to make a request of him. In response, Nehemiah boldly asks for leave to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, as well as for materials and provisions for the building project. Artaxerxes grants it all, and in fact, at some point, he even makes Nehemiah governor of the region around Jerusalem. So Nehemiah not only organizes and leads the people to effectively build the wall, but he also stops oppression of the poor that was going on, and he works to institute policies that generally restore the true worship of Yahweh in that place. And that brings us to chapter 8. Actually, let's note at the very end of chapter 7, it says, When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. I had mentioned that we we're going to read about a New Year's celebration, so I can understand if you might be confused by this reference to the seventh month. Well, much like we have a calendar year and a fiscal year and an academic year, in the same way on the Jewish calendar, there was the calendar year and uh, made up of 12 lunar months, and then there was the religious year, which started on the seventh month. So this is a New Year's celebration of sorts, and it, it would, would have fallen... Uh, sometime in September or October. It's, it's still observed as the, um, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. But according to Leviticus, it was the Feast of Trumpets, a day of rest and celebration. So here in chapter 8, we see the people gathering in Jerusalem for the new year. And today I want to walk you through four aspects of how they gathered and the difference that it made. Four aspects about how they gathered. The first thing that we can note about their gathering is this, that they gathered expectantly. They gathered expectantly. We see this in verses 1 and 2. They were each in their own towns, but now for the new year, they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And keep in mind that this was only a few days after that lengthy wall-building project had, had ended. Surely the people were eager to be back at their homes with their families, taking care of their homes for a change. Because during the latter part of the construction, there was, there was a great threat of attack from enemies throughout the region, and, and those enemies didn't want Jerusalem to have walls again. So the workers had to be ex ex especially vigilant. And we read in Nehemiah 4.22 and following, I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So the men had just come off of weeks of that sort of vigilant night and day work away from their families. And yet we see here a few days later, the initiative belongs to the people. They were in their towns, and then they gathered back in Jerusalem as one man. Why? Because they wanted something. 
they asked for Ezra to bring out the Torah. This was either part or all of the first five books of the Bible. Imagine perhaps 50,000 of them calling together for the book, the book, the book. And regardless of their differences in background, their different ages, their different hometowns, or preferences about lesser things, on this they were united. That they were beggars in need of God's word. That's what brought them together. And I think that in our age, when church conflict is extremely common, it's worth noting from Nehemiah 8 that this insatiable appetite for the faithful interpretation of Scripture, it's a powerful unifying force among God's people. May that always be true here at Maple Avenue. We see that not only the men gathered, not only the women gathered, but also all who could understand probably a reference to children as well. They all saw their need for God's words, and the parents didn't dismiss their children's ability to understand these things, but they wanted, if at all possible, for their children to be first-handers, to experience these things for themselves as well. And the place where they gathered was the square before the water gate. This was the gate which the people would go in and out of throughout the day to get water for themselves from a nearby spring. So it's no exaggeration to say that this was a center of public life. If it helps, you can think of Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto or Times Square in New York City. Only the people weren't gathering to see famous people talk. They weren't gathering to watch a glittery ball drop or, or big numbers count down on a screen. And they weren't waiting for a band to perform or for a contrived party to start. No, they clearly expected the transcendent God of the universe, to speak to them through the word he had given to Moses about a thousand years earlier. And they expected and they longed for that word to change their lives. So as you think about the coming new year, what sort of gathering, what sort of experiences fill you with anticipation? When you think about the possibility always available to us of gathering around God's word like they did, what holds you back? What are your hesitations? Whether it's sitting under preaching like this on a Sunday morning or gathering in a growth group or doing one-to-one Bible reading with another person, what keeps you from being excited and expectant about what's going to happen? Are you tempted to think that the scriptures are something that only men need or only women need or only children need to concern themselves with? Maybe you're afraid that you won't understand or that You'll be left feeling empty or confused. Or maybe you're just weary from the week's work and you have trouble believing that gathering around God's word will be more beneficial to you than all the ways that we naturally think of to rest. Well, in all these situations, the narrative from Nehemiah 8 is definitely a corrective to us. So first we see that the people gathered expectantly. The second observation about this gathering is that the people listened attentively. They listened attentively. And we see this in verses 3 through 8. Our impatience and our our short attention spans are definitely challenged here in verse 3 where it says that Ezra responded to their request by reading from the scriptures from early morning until midday, likely a span of six or seven hours. And all the the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And they were able to be atten- attentive in part because there was this giant 
wooden platform that had been built, uh, big enough for Ezra and his 13 helpers to stand on. Definitely important in the days before microphones. So Ezra stood there and he blessed Yahweh, the great God who had given them his book. And they raised their hands and said, Amen, Amen, expressing, Yes, yes, we need this. And sometimes we can think of, um, I think we can think of our, our singing as the praise and worship time of our service, leaving the time in Scripture as a sort of a dry knowledge-building time. But here we see that the people didn't view it that way. And the teaching and the hearing of Scripture was just as much an expression of worship as singing. And that makes sense for us too, doesn't it? If you're a worshiper of God, then you want to know what He says. And if you rightly hear what He says, then it will stir up worship in your heart. And the people didn't stay standing, but then they bowed their heads and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. And this humble, this scene of humble worship, it should remind us that preaching and Bible study, they're not ends in, their, in themselves. They're tied up with worship, and they're meant to lead us to the fervent adoration of God. Well, as we move to verse 7, I don't want you to be thrown off by this list of unpronounceable names. These are Levites, and according to the law of Moses, they were designated to be teachers of God's word. After Jesus, God no longer designates such teachers by tribe or or family name, but he does graciously give us men in our midst who are able to give the sense of the scriptures, to go around and explain the scriptures to teachable people. So instead of getting hung up because you don't know who Bonnie or Sherebiah or Jamin are, Just use the opportunity to thank God for his provision in our context. Men like John Heron, George Comfort, Utah Secchi, Tim Rosinski, just to name a few. So these Levites moved around from group to group, making sure that all had understood what they heard. And though the words being explained were already a thousand years old, the people listened attentively because they knew that every part of God's word is always contemporary and always relevant. We may not have the patience or the discernment to identify what that message is, but it doesn't mean that it's not there for us. So what sort of life-changing truths might the crowd have heard that day from the the law of Moses? They might have been reminded of how God created everything and fashioned humanity to reflect his goodness out across the earth. They might have thought of how chaos breaks out everywhere, and especially in the human experience when we opt for our definition of good and evil over and against God's declaration of what good and evil are. Or maybe they were struck anew by the promise of a serpent crusher, one who would be an offspring of Eve and somehow bring humanity back to the garden. Maybe they would have reflected on God's judgment in flood and plagues, showing his commitment to wash clean this world and how he uses his power to lure wickedness to its own destruction. Perhaps they reflected again on the futility of Babel and put into helpful perspective their recent building project, important as it was. They would have read accounts of God preserving his people, how he's going to use Abraham's clan to bring blessing to the whole world as a kingdom of priests. In the account of Joseph, they might have meditated on how God regularly hijacks the evil of the world and uses it for good. 
in the Exodus, they would have been reminded of how Yahweh is a God of redemption for those in slavery, how he brought them through the waters and into the promised land. The institution of the Passover meal meant to commemorate how the blood of the lamb causes death to pass over the people of God. In the giving of the law and covenant at Sinai, they would have remembered God's righteous character and his loving kindness toward his people. In Leviticus and Numbers, they would see God's final solution for sin prefigured in the tabernacle and the sacrifices. They would have been reminded of God's provision in the wilderness and also how he tests and disciplines his people for their own good. They would have heard graphically about how idolatry leads to destruction. Perhaps they were amazed again at the messianic prophecy given through Balaam of all people that I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. In Deuteronomy, they would have seen that Moses predicted the very exile from which they just returned. They would have heard the promise that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And they would have heard these words of the Lord. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. We don't know all that God could have taught the people in the crowd on that day, because his words are infinite in depth and wisdom and power. But the people listened attentively to all of these things, and so must we. For that final prophet, Jesus, has come, and therefore we must pay much closer attention to the things we have heard, lest we drift away from them. God speaks to us uniquely through his word, and if we close our ears to this conversation, we just can't hope to know him rightly or to understand our reality correctly. As Deuteronomy 32 says, For it is no empty word to you, but your very life. And attentiveness to Scripture is not just a necessity. It's also a gift, because there is rich treasure in every detail. If it was true for this attentive audience, how much more for us benefiting not just from the five books of Moses, but also the prophets, the writings, the gospels, the epistles. How much greater riches do we have to mine for ourselves? And yet, sadly, many, perhaps most of us, aren't even familiar with all of the books of the Bible in a detailed manner. We put them in the, yep, read that category, without desperately and repeatedly pondering them for benefit to our lives. Not so the crowd in Nehemiah 8. They took pains to be sure to understand the meaning of all that was written. So secondly, the people listened attentively. And third, we see that those who had gathered to hear God's word responded correctly. They responded correctly. And we see this first in verse 9 where it says, All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. The weeping indicates that they were struck with remorse for having failed to observe the demands of the law. It cut them to the core. And this doesn't mean that the law was totally new to those who heard it that day. 
The scriptures were definitely known by the community in exile, and we know that Ezra and other priests were, were teaching it here back in the land in the preceding decades. But God was doing something new here today. And history shows us that it's not uncommon for individuals or for whole congregations to be struck in a fresh way by Scripture, regardless of its familiarity, because it's the Spirit of God who is teaching them. The Spirit of God is the one applying the words. And the Spirit, through the Word, causes us to see in a new way the seriousness of God's demands and the magnitude of our shortfall. So the people responded correctly by grieving their sins. We see in chapter 9 more of the extent of that grief. As later that month, the people gathered again to thoroughly confess their sins as a people. And then that correct response is followed by chapter 10, where we see the correct response of a renewal of the covenant. The people recommitting themselves to live as God's people and to submit to his design for their lives. That same desire is reflected even at the end of chapter 8. We're not going to read those verses today, but verses 13 and following, you'll see that wanting to sincerely worship God, they immediately act on something obvious that the public reading had brought to their attention. The celebration of the Feast of Booths, which was meant to be observed shortly after the Feast of Trumpets. So they obey after who knows how many years of neglecting that command. Because when we place ourselves under God's word, not over it as critics, and not just picking parts of it to perk us up and make us feel good about ourselves, and not just using it as background noise for our traditions, but when we really place ourselves under God's word as they did on that day, then it never leaves us unchanged. It uncovers some area of rebellion in our lives where we've told God that our definitions of good and evil are better than his. Or it uncovers areas of need where our foolishness has hurt others and accentuated how very small we are. Or it uncovers areas of unbelief where we're living as if the glorious reality of his coming kingdom just isn't the case. Well, I promise that if you look at his word, it may hurt when you uncover those areas but it will be a good sort of hurt because God's words lead us to lifestyles of repentance. And without lifestyles of repentance, there is no salvation. I wonder if at the turning of your new year, it's time for you to respond rightly to God's word, to read it, to really read it, and to submit to it, to name your reality as it appears in these pages, and to take the obvious step of obedience, the one that you've been dodging for who knows how long, even and especially if it means having to admit to those around you that you were wrong. I promise you'll find great freedom in responding to Scripture in that way. So the people gathered expectantly. They listened attentively. They responded correctly. And lastly, we see that they left joyfully. They left full of joy. You can see that in verses 10 through 12. This point is actually just an extension of how they responded correctly, isn't it? Because in the end, they wouldn't have been responding correctly to Scripture if it didn't lead them to joy. Though their immediate response was grief, Ezra and Nehemiah didn't want them to leave that way. 
According to Deuteronomy, these feast days were meant to be times of joy. There would be a time for the correct response of grief, as mentioned earlier. They devoted another gathering just to the confession of their sins. That did need to happen. But it was important that they not miss the forest because of the trees. The big picture here was that they understood what they heard. And they could know, they could really know the God in whose presence are pleasures forevermore. And the treasure of his words was being reclaimed by that community. And that was definitely a cause for celebration. Let me read verse 10 again, part of which is frequently quoted. And he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Those words are very familiar to us, and so I hope you'll forgive me when I suggest that there could be a slightly better translation of that last sentence. Some versions translate it, The joy of the Lord is your stronghold. The joy of the Lord is your stronghold. Not only is that a more specific translation of the Hebrew word in question, but it fits the context really nicely because the people are grieved. They're grieved because the scriptures are showing them just how seriously they've been unfaithful to their God. The new city walls might protect them from regional enemies, but what would protect them against themselves? And what was their stronghold against sin and divine wrath and death? So the joy of the Lord is their protection against the judgments prescribed in the law that was just read to them. The joy of the Lord is their source of strength in the midst of devastating remorse. The joy of the Lord is their fortress against the condemnation and the despair that come from the great distance between God and sinful man. And this type of joy is rooted in the very scriptures they just read even as the initial grief had been stirred up by those same scriptures. Because the law of Moses, it did contain the demands of God, but it also contained the accounts of his great acts of mercy. Salvation that could be embraced by this generation, just as it had been by their ancestors. And so the joy of the Lord available was the joy that each Israelite could experience at these festivals as he or she identified with the gracious promises of God. He alone makes sense of how our accurate grief could turn to realistic joy. And it's in the scriptures that we see him and come to understand that joy of our salvation. As we start this new year, who or what is your stronghold, I wonder? What is your source of strength by which you're attempting to live? In the joy of the Lord you will be safe. Some of you here are great at responding in verse 9, great at grieving your sin, and I thank God for that. But you need to turn the corner to joy. Turn the corner to his strength, the stronghold of the joy of the Lord. It can feel responsible and, and spiritual to experience grief, but then we can get stuck there. But God's word is meant to lead you to joy. And there's an incredible strength to be had in the joy of the Lord. Have you seen these strong saints who have an unshakable joy? Usually they're old. Usually they've suffered horrendously. But along the way, they have learned to fix their joy 
to something more permanent than what this world has to offer. It's powerful to see a joyful Christian. And that's because they are living out the character of their God who is more joyful than we could know. So if you know that God, don't stay weeping. Celebrate that you are in Jesus. Celebrate that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Celebrate that all things are working together for your good and that the best is yet to come. Fullness of joy in his presence forevermore. Let that joy be stirred up by the truths of his word. As Jesus said in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So that's what happened for the people here, and we see that they were commanded to celebrate. We see that this joy was meant to spill over to others too as they shared what they had with the poor. Another proof of that joy that they left with is that they asked for more exposure to God's word. Verse 13 tells us that the next day, all the community leaders gathered again with Ezra in order to further study the law. And verse 18 tells us that during the Feast of Booths, which they then celebrated, they kept reading from the scriptures throughout the eight days. Their experience of joy had turned into this habitual longing for the words of God. And this can be true for us as well. Do you want to be happy in God? Look at his word. Bathe yourself in the scriptures, and it will become a joy-filled pattern in your life. So we've seen that at the turning of that year, they came before God's word expectantly, they listened attentively, they responded correctly, and they left joyfully. Now let's fast forward 2,500 years. What is your new year going to look like? While we stand at a much more privileged place in redemptive history, there still are a lot of similarities between our lives and the lives of the people in Nehemiah's generation. We, like them, have been gathered out of exile by a gracious God into a restored community of promise. And that story is behind us in one sense, and yet we, like Nehemiah's generation, we still experience the oppression of the world, don't we? God's kingdom has not yet become a glorious reality that covers the whole earth. The final fulfillment of his promises still awaits us. What do we need in this interim period? How do we make sense of the feelings of futility that can come with the passing of years? In Deuteronomy 8, God's people were taught to make sense of their experiences by seeing that he was using their need to expose their hearts. And he let you hunger, that he might teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If you feel a lack of meaning or a hunger for change, look to the joy that awaits you in God's word. I can't say exactly what he has for you this year. His word is infinite in possibilities. But you can seize every opportunity to be in Scripture, devour sermons, pick a reading plan at the desk on the way out, and try to read the Bible in a year. If you get behind, don't fret about it. Just pick up again on the current day and keep going. Don't give up. Participate in one-to-one Bible reading. Join a growth group. 
Come to 9 a.m. Bible class. Listen to the Bible in your car or on the go train. Post a chapter on your wall for meditation. Try to memorize a passage with family or friends. These are only suggestions of how to take advantage of the grace that's available for you. The means will vary person to person, but the point is to grow together in the joy that comes from experiencing the Word of God together. And if this feels daunting, I I just want to step back and look at how you do spend your time. Because for anything that we love, anything that gives us a sense of freedom or joy or a sense of exciting future, it requires commitment from us, doesn't it? If we enjoy sports or music, hobbies, travel, reading fiction, collecting something, becoming a connoisseur of something, we easily give our time to it, right? It excites us. And how much more should it be so for the Bible? Or think of it this way. We have to know someone before we can love them. But then the more you love them, the more you want to keep learning about them. And this is true in a good marriage, and it's also true of our devotion to God. You can't love him if you don't know him. And if you know him and love him, you want to keep learning about him more and more. And the more you truly learn about him, the more you will love him. Repeat cycle. It's that sort of love that motivates our commitment to the scriptures. Did you know that if most people simply traded their TV time for Bible reading, they'd finish the entire Bible in four weeks or less? And if, like the psalmist, you have experienced the scriptures as sweeter than honey to the taste, a true lamp for your feet, as the joy of your heart, as infinitely more valuable than gold, then it's not hard to long for it, as the crowd did in Nehemiah 8. Longing for it, as a person short of oxygen gasps for breath. So don't miss out on the joy that the people received in Nehemiah's day from sitting under God's word. Whether you're relatively new to the faith or whether you've memorized whole books of the Bible, I hope that you will accept this challenge to make 2018 the year when Scripture gripped you and began to define your life in a way that you never knew was possible. I'm not exaggerating when I say that it can carry you to new heights of human experience and renew your vigor far past anything that this weary world has to offer. I want more of this for myself, and I want more of this for you. The joyous New Year celebration of Nehemiah 8 would prove to be a turning point. For the Jewish community, they would always afterward be known as a people of the book. May the same be true of us at Maple Avenue in 2018 and beyond. May we be known as joyful people rooted in the word of God. And I don't know what your plans are for tonight. Maybe you are planning to head to Nathan Phillips Square. Maybe you've prepared some rich foods and sweet wine that you are already planning to share with others. Whatever your plans, I hope that you'll be celebrating more tonight than just the passing of time and wishful thoughts for the future. Celebrate that God has powerfully spoken, that we can hear those very words, and by his mercy, we can understand. Let's pray.